Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. This is Julie Henricus, the Executive Director of Sisters in Crime, and I am delighted to welcome Reese Bowen to the podcast today. Reese is the New York Times bestselling author of the Royal Spyness novels, as well as the Molly Murphy mysteries she now writes with her daughter, Claire Broyles. In addition, Reese writes internationally bestselling standalone historical novels, mostly set in World War II. She's received three Edgar nominations and won 20 awards to date as well as being published in over 30 languages. Reese was born and educated in Britain, worked in BBC drama, but now divides her time between California and Arizona. Reese, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Hi, Julie. It's lovely to be here. So I'm going to start this as I always start um, these conversations. When did you first say to yourself, I want to write a novel? Um. Well, um. My mother tells me that I wrote my first poem when I was four. So <laughs> I probably, I think, you know, little kids live in a world of pretend and make-believe. And I just never grew out of that. I think one of the problems, I was born in the middle of World War II, and I didn't see another child until I was three years old. So mm. um, uh, I think I'd had, I learned that I had to create my own little world, which I did. And um, so I always created stories for myself. As far as writing a novel, when I was in my teens, I decided I wanted to be a movie star. And so I decided I was going to write scripts for myself so that so that when I was a movie star, I'd have all these lovely scripts to star in. So I started writing these movie scripts. They were all incredibly dramatic and incredibly sad. They always ended up with everybody sobbing and people dead, you know. <laughs> um, but so, I mean, that was my first uh, foray into writing something longer and something that had a form to it. Um, but I, th- I think I always knew that I wanted to write but um, my first experience with professional writing was right after college, I went into BBC, into BBC drama, and I was a studio manager. And I find I found I was been working on, um, I'd be working on a play, and I think if I'd written this, I wouldn't have ended it this way. Mm-hmm. So, so I went home and I wrote, um, I wrote my first play, and with the bravado of a 22-year-old, I walked down the hall to the head of drama, and I said, I've written this play. Um, and a few days later, he called me in, and he said, yes, we really like this. We're going to do it. Wow. Um, pretty much since then, I've been a published author. So it's been my my whole life has been writing. Um, and um, it's, you know, it's had some ups and downs. It's gone in different directions. But essentially, I've been creating stories all my life. 
Wow. So at 22, you, uh, you know, obviously the, the teenage years of writing your own screenplay sort of helped, but um, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's remarkable um, that you, you know, that that happened like that. So you built, when you were writing these screenplays as a, for yourself, I also have to commend you for being so practical that <laughs> in case <laughs> the acting thing didn't work out, you yeah, were yeah. also going to yeah. write. Um <laughs> But how did you learn the craft? Um, I think I was very into movies. So I think I went to a lot of movies and I knew which ones I liked and which ones I didn't. And um, I sort of, you you know, it's one of those things. I, I've always, when I do, when I teach people writing courses, I say writing is not an art form as much as a craft form. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're if you're a, a potter, you learn how to manipulate that clay to come into what you want. And we learn how to manipulate words into what we want. So I think the more you do it, the better you get at it. And I'm sure those I, I don't have any copies, unfortunately, because having moved around so much, they they got lost. But I'm sure that um, uh, they were not what we were, you, the, you know, the traditional three act screenplay that we write now. I'm sure they were not that, but they 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 certainly did have you know uh, a relationship that was important and and the heroine under duress and and a great climax and everything you know so we did yeah. all that yeah. the three act structure and did you um when you were how did crime novels come into <laughs> into uh, this? You know, you're, you're so your studio manager at the BBC. And what does a studio manager do? Um, in charge of all the technical side of the production. So I would say where the microphones were going to be placed, um, what sort of sounds we were going to use wow. in the background. Or, you know, studio studio managers did, did all that. It was a fantastic job for someone who'd just come out of college because uh, I worked with you know, amazing actors, all, all the best people in England wanted to work with the BBC. And yeah. so I'd be working with, you know, Sir John Gilgut. And he'd say to me, um, I'm new to this medium. So tell me if I'm doing something wrong. And I think, oh, my God, there's me, you know, 22 <laughs> year old me saying to Sir John Gilgut, could you move a little closer to that mic, please? <laughs> no, it was a fantastic, the whole BBC was fantastic experience. And, um, but as far as crime novels, I grew up reading crime. You know, first of all, when I was very young, it was the famous five who was really the English equivalent to, to Nancy Drew, only they were a bit younger, but they, they went off and they had these adventures and they camped on islands and they, they tracked down the smugglers. And so they were very, they were my first crime novels. Um, uh, and then I moved on to my mother's collection of, of Agatha Christie and then, when I was first given my first adult library card, I went to that library and I looked down that shelf and I moved along from uh, Allingham to Christie to Sayers all the way down that shelf, you know. So, And I think all those ladies of the golden age, they were fun. They were lovely puzzles. I loved the puzzle in those days to be think if I could outsmart the writer. Yeah. Um, but they never really touched your soul. You know, you never really wept for the body in the library. Um and so writing crime novels, it was only when I was home with small children and I discovered Tony Hilleman. Mm. And he absolutely blew me away because for the first time, I had not only the crime to solve, I he took me somewhere. 
He mm-hmm. took me to the southwest so vividly that the first time I was there, I was a tour guide to my husband. I would say, you see over there, in the distance, you can see Shiprock. Now, there's a ledge there, and that's where the body fell off. You know, I, <laughs> I knew it all. And also, he gave me the insights into how a very different people thought, you know, the insights into the Navajo. When I read one of the books, I think it was the first one I read, and it said that a Navajo couldn't have done it because they have no concept of revenge. I thought, wow, that's fantastic. And so I thought, that's what I want to write. I want to, I had been writing young adult novels and they'd been quite successful and I'd done a lot of them and they'd put four kids through college. So that would that have been good. Um, but then I suddenly thought, this is what I want to write. I want to write a book that, um, that takes people somewhere, that makes them feel they're in a different time and place. And so my first foray into mystery writing was the Constable Evans series set in Wales. And my mother's family comes from there. And I spent a lot of childhood summers staying with great aunts in, in Wales. So I had a great feel for that region, just the, the geography. My aunt had taken me up Mount Snowdon by every single route. And then also how the people thought and spoke. They spoke Welsh, you know. So that was a great thing for me to, to write to start with. So we started off with that um, and and been going ever since. Indeed, indeed. The the young adult novels. I don't want to skip over that. What what, what type of novels were they? They were mainly um, uh, they were mainly teenage. I suppose you call them teenage romances. They were just regular kids in in high school. If you'd ever read when you were growing up any of the Sweet Dream series, mm-hmm. I wrote a lot. I wrote a lot of those, and um, yeah, they were just general. They were they were ordinary kids living ordinary lives. You know, with Worries about making friends, losing friends, going to the prom, not going to the prom, moving away, coming back, you know, all the sort of things that some of them were darker than others, but most of them were, were fairly um, uh, fairly light, I think. And people, you know, people loved them because they were very escapist. And how did you how did you find your way into writing YA novels? Um, my whole writing life has been completely serendipitous, I have to tell you. There was no planning or anything to anything in it. Um, (laughs) What had happened was I'd been with the BBC in London. I got lured down to work for Australian television in in Sydney. So I went down to Australia, and I'd been there a few months, and then I met my husband and my future husband. And he was – he'd been working for Qantas, and he was on his way back. He'd lived in San Francisco. He was on his way back to America. So. uh, we, when we knew we were going to get married, we moved to California. And then, of course, I found there was nothing like the BBC. If I wanted to write for television, I'd have to live in L.A. and write for Dragnet. You know, that's how it was. So I started writing children's books. And, um, again, it was quite fortuitous. The first ones I wrote were received very well. So I got an agent. And um, one day she came to me and said, uh, could you write me a teenage novel in a hurry? <laughs> and um, I said, I don't know. She said, well, I really need three chapters by next Tuesday. So, so I went to the bookstore and I came back with the only YA books there were. This was in 1980. Um, the only YA books there were at that stage. And the sort of there was E.T. Hinton and Richard Peck. There were about three or four, and they were all really rather dark. Um, and I spread them on the kitchen table in front of me, and I was studying them all. 
And my husband walked behind me and he said, you don't write that sort of stuff. So a little voice inside me went, huh. <laughs> so I did do the three chapters and I was given the go ahead to write um, the rest of the book. And I didn't write, I didn't at that stage know who I was writing for. And then it turned out that it was going to be one of the books that Bantam at that time was going to use to launch the, the series called Sweet Dreams. So suddenly I'm writing a book that sells a printing of 100,000 in a week. It was, they were just amazing. They, they were really, what they were was the first uh, realization that uh, teenage girls have disposable income. They have money to spend on themselves. And so they were the first books that weren't chosen by a librarian or by a teacher or by an aunt. They were chosen by the kids themselves. And what the kids themselves wanted was to read about themselves. Yeah. They wanted to know how did this girl handle it when her best friend betrayed her? You know, mm -hmm. how did this girl handle when she was the only one who didn't have a boyfriend? All those things that real girls worry about all the time. And some of them were more serious than others, you know, dealing with a parent's divorce and which parent is she loyal to, you know, all these sort of things that girls go through. Mm -hmm. so, so I wrote them and, and they became popular and I was very much in demand for a while. And um, it, was a, it was a time in our lives when um, we were going through a bit of a crisis. My husband had been laid off from his airline job of 20 years and we had kids coming up for college, so I wrote my little heart out for a while. <laughs> and um, and then and then it was, you know, I got to a stage where I suddenly thought, I've done enough of this. I don't want to do any more of it. So yeah. that was when I switched to mysteries. And I have to tell you that it was one of those, I've taken several big um, risks and leaps of faith in my career, and that was one of them because yeah. the teenage novels had been popular. And suddenly I started from square one again. Mm -hmm. The first print run of, um, of the first Constable Evans book called Evans Above, the print run was 2,500 books. Now, um, nobody's going to know who I am. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm starting from square one with a new name, with a new genre, and 2,500 books are going to go to a few libraries, and that's about it. So I've literally had to work my way up from the bottom, gaining one reader at a time. Yeah. And I had, I had a, st a stroke of luck with the second book. Well, it wasn't a stroke of luck. with the second book because a friend sent me um, a list and said, did you know about this? And it was the Barry Award nominations. And I thought, what a cruel joke to play. That's really spiteful because it went, it went Michael Connolly, Jeffrey Deaver, Reese Bowen, Ian Rankin and someone else like that. And I thought, that's that's really mean to do that. <laughs> but it turned out it was real. So, you know, oh. suddenly people were going, Michael Connolly, Jeffrey Diva, who the hell is Reese Bowen? You know? <laughs> um, so, you know, that that really helped a bit. And then of course, um, I got the idea to write the Molly Murphy series. And the first book of those won the Agatha. So people suddenly went, Oh, well, who is she? And you know, so that was a big step up.
Yeah. And and so many books since and so many, um, uh, you know, I, historical. I want to talk about all that, but also uh, this I think it's a helpful thing for people to hear that there was a point in your writing life where you just said, I need to take a leap. I need to change things up. I need to push myself. And it wasn't guaranteed that you were going to be respawned when you took that leap. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it was a huge, it was a huge leap. You know, I could have, I could have kept on writing happy teenage novels for the rest of my life and they would have made, uh, you know, not a huge income, but a decent income. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I could have kept on doing that. And I'd always said to myself, if I can't be thrilled to go and sit at my desk, I won't write this anymore. Mm -hmm. you know, I, I'm now on Molly Murphy book 20 and Royal Spinus book 16. And for both of those, if um, if I can't say, oh, I can't wait to write the next Molly book, I'll stop. You know, you have to, if I don't have the joy, you don't have the joy in reading it. That's what I've always felt. And as you've been taking those leaps, uh, have you, because I know you teach, but but how have you kept working on the craft or, or sort of kept inspiring yourself? Because you've taken other leaps, um, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. very recent years uh, into writing standalone. So, yeah. you know, and I'd love to talk about that. But how have you kept building the craft? Um, I think every time, well, as I said, words are like working with clay. Every mm -hmm. time you write something, you get, you should get a little bit better at it. Um and I've noticed, I mean, if I go back to those first Constable Evans books, first of all, they're quite short. You know, they're maybe 250, 260 pages at the, at the most. Because I didn't, you know, I wanted to tell the story. I think when you're writing a mystery, you're so focused on, okay, it's a dead body. Someone needs to solve it. Good, we've solved it in the end. Um, <laughs> but as I've gone along, the books have been much more about the whole world building and setting and the characters' backstories and how the characters interact with each other. And gradually I've I've learned to put those pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together so that the book is not just reading about there's a body lying on the floor with a knife in its back. I'm going to solve it. To, um, you know, I'm solving this crime. And by doing this, am I finding out more about myself? Mm-hmm. So I think the whole character of the sleuth has become much more important to me as, as I've gone along. And as you're writing, as you said, you've, you've been writing the Royal Spiness and the Molly books and, you know, you're well into those series Do you, and, and character growth and character arcs. Mm -hmm. Do you think about, you know, how do you approach those as you're writing these long running series? Uh, I think the, 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 the wonderful thing about writing a series is it's one really, really long novel. Yeah. <laughs> um, you start knowing so much. That's why they're a joy in many ways. It's like going back to the high school reunion each time because you know these characters and everyone's going to say, hey, Race, haven't seen you for a while. What have you been doing? And um, and I say, what have you been doing? And then they tell me and then I write another book. So, uh, so you know, in, in some ways it's, it's um, easier to write the next series novel because I do – I know where the character lives. I know who the people around them are. I know how they react if there was a particular situation. I know what their fears are. I know what their hopes are. I know all of that. The danger is that it, it will be very easy to slip into um, a formula. 
Mm-hmm. It'd be, especially the royal finest, it'd be very easy to say, oh, Lady George is going to see the Queen, and the Queen's going to say, I've lost another snuff box, would you go and find it? And then she goes, and then there's a dead body lying on the floor. You know, right. I could do that over and over, but I don't want to. That's why, you know, in, in all of the series, I've pushed my characters to do things that are difficult for them. I think we took a big leap with the last Royal Spinus book, which was called Peril in Paris, because these books are by nature, as, as you know, they're funny, they're light, they're, um, you know, young woman, embarrassing situations, strange relatives, mixing with the royals, all those things. And in the last book, she's asked to um, help with the extraction of uh, of uh, um, the work of a Jewish scientist from Germany. Um, and when she agrees to do it, doesn't really realize how dangerous it's going to be. Mm-hmm. So we've got, we've got running through the whole series this undercurrent of what what life is like in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. And then when, as we get closer to uh, the war, we know that Hitler's now in power. We know um, that Germany is getting a little more dangerous. And this time we see for ourselves um, Georgie's mother comes over. She's living with this very rich man in Germany, as we know. She comes over with a group of, of uh, very upscale German wives to, to go shopping at Chanel. And Georgie sees that her mother has a minder. There's a woman who's with her wherever she goes. And Georgie says to her mother, you can't keep living there. And, George, and, and, and her mother said, but, you know, I, everyone adores me in Germany. You know, Max adores me. <laughs> Everybody adores me. So um, Georgie's now got this worry about her mother. So we're gradually inserting into this more details that could be worrying in future books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, this period that you write in, uh, you know, these this sort of overarching um historical well you write in several periods um let me back up one more second do you, or just ask a mechanics question do you plot your books are you do you just stay i'm gonna i'm entering molly's world well and you're writing those with your daughter so i want to talk about that but how do you how do you approach each novel um well i'm i'm fairly organic in the way i write i know what the setting is. Um, I know what sort of um, difficulty my character will be plunged into, but I don't know how this will all play out at the beginning. I don't, I don't outline. If I outlined, I'd do a very good outline, and then I go, well, that's that book done, and I'd put it aside and go <laughs> on to something else. Um, I really like to be, I, you know, my whole theory is if you create characters, you have to trust them to go ahead and do what they've got to do and you follow them and I like to be surprised when my character goes into a room and says something and I thought what are you doing that for I like to be surprised you know because then my readers surprised so um, I like to follow on obviously now I'm working with Claire mm-hmm. we do a lot more talking ahead because we decide who's going to handle which bit you know she'll say well you know we're going to have that party scene well I can really visualize that well so I'll do that um so we we do talk a lot more ahead about, but then again, we don't really know the full details. Like we've just finished the third book together, and that's set in um, the Catskill Mountains in one of the fledgling Jewish bungalow colonies there. And so we knew that someone was going to be killed and we knew someone else was going to be accused. Um, 
but we really didn't know details. And it wasn't till we got to the end that we realized there had to be some really big thing happen that we hadn't thought about. So, you know, it's nice when that happens too. And is it challenging to write with somebody else, even, you know, your daughter who you know so well, but, uh, you know, I, I'm, I marvel at people who can write books together. Uh, well, when she came to me and asked me, you know, I put Molly on one side because I was already doing two books a year and I, there was no way I could do three. Um, right. I was just running myself ragged. Um, and she said, you know, um, people keep emailing you saying, when's the next Molly book coming out? I'd love to do that series with you. And I knew she was a good writer um, and she's an easy person to get along with. There are other people, you know, you wouldn't want to write a book with. Um, but uh, I, so I was a bit ambivalent. I thought, well, if this doesn't work out and I have to say, you know, I'm really sorry, Claire, but we can't do this. Um, <laughs> but I gave it a go and I was amazed how quickly she came in. She read all the 17 books again and mm -hmm. came in with Molly's voice perfectly and came in with some really fresh ideas. And she loves, she loves the research. So she will read the New York Times for every day that we're writing about. And by doing that, she's coming up with some fascinating stories that have become a good plot, a really twist in the plot, or else have become little funny side stories. And so, you know, she's taking on a lot of the load. And I'm hoping with each book, I'm stepping back a little. And I'm yeah. hoping finally I can say, okay, this is yours now. I'll be the mentor in the background and you write the book. Um, so it, and and really, we haven't no, we haven't had one crossword in the whole thing. I mean, she will uh, she will write a chapter, and I will go through it and and give my feedback. Um, but I don't think I've ever said, oh, I don't think Molly would do that or something. We we read each other so that it's smooth. And now, if I read through, I can't tell you which bits she wrote and which bits I wrote. So. Wow. Um, so it, it, it is a very – and, of course, the nice thing is when normally when you're a writer, you sit there in your own little room with your cup of coffee, and it's not until it's done that someone else takes a look at it. And this way we're getting feedback every day. And she'll say, hey, I had a great idea for that next chapter. What if she does so-and-so, but it, it isn't? And I go, oh, yeah, that's – and so, you know, we sort of spark each other as we go along. So I think I think it's a really good experience. and. And it's fun to have someone to talk to every day. Like, did you get that chapter done yet? No, I'm in the middle of that. Too. And, you know, we we bounce ideas off each other. Well, you also mentioned that you were writing two books a year and you're still writing two books a year. Yeah, two and a half now. Two, two and, and a half. half. Yeah. Yes. Can, do you work on different projects at the same time or do you sort of need to be in the Molly zone and in the, you know, how how does that work? Because that's a lot to do. <laughs> yeah, I, there's, there's no way I could do more than one at once. When I'm writing that first draft, I really, I really am in that world. I mean, I have been known to go and look for a cardigan, even though it's July, because Molly's in the middle of winter. Yeah. And and you know, one of the worst examples was if if Daniel was being unfair to Molly in some way. I'd come up to the kitchen and, and John's there and I snap at him and he goes, what? What's the matter? What? And I go, oh, oh no, sorry. It's Molly who's annoyed with Daniel. It's not you at all. Um, so I really, and, and the downside on that is that I find it really hard to switch off. I will wake up in the night and I would turn over and I go, oh, wait a minute. She wouldn't have said that, you know, yeah. and then I have to get up and scribble that down. So 
until that first draft is done, I am I'm there and I'm driving towards Safeway and I'm thinking about the next scene. It's it's hard to switch off. And your standalones, um, how did those come about? I mean, again, that's another leap. Um, and you're, you know, they're yes. complete novels. So, um, yeah. you know, and you've been writing, known for writing series. So how did the how did the standalones come about? Well, you uh, one of the questions that you asked me in advance was, what was the worst piece of writing advice I'd ever got? Yeah. Um, and in about, I think for just over 2000, in the early 2000s, I read about British aristocrats who, who had been aiding Hitler. And I thought, oh, I'd like to write a book about that. That's That's awful. That's shocking because their motivation was really pure. They wanted to, they wanted to um, uh, stop the invasion and stop Britain being destroyed by bombs. And they thought, they thought Britain couldn't win. So, um, I came up with this idea to write a book about an, uh, an English country house and an aristocratic, aristocratic family and someone who was, um, actually aiding Hitler. Um, and so I started, I, I wrote an outline and, um, a few chapters and I showed it to my then agent and she came back at me and she said, nobody's interested in World War II, and I find it really insulting that you'd show people having a very easy life when people on the continent of Europe are suffering so much. So I put the idea aside, and um, over the years I got a new agent. <laughs> and, um, uh, and then a few years ago I thought I was established enough in my career that I could revisit that, and I brought it out again, and I thought, you know, this is really good. So I showed it to my current agent, and she loved it. And we showed it to both of my publishers, um, and they both turned it down. They, one of them said, this is too far from her brand. And the other one said, this isn't funny. Like, well, no, it's, it's not funny. It's the middle of a war, you know. Um, but my agent said, I know someone who has been dying to work with you. And that was Daniel Marshall at Lake Union, one of the Amazon companies. So we sent it to her, and she was ecstatic about it and um, promised me all sorts of good things. And that was, a, that was another huge risk to take mm -hmm. because um, I knew what most bookstores feel about Amazon with good reason. You know, I understand mm -hmm. if I were an independent bookstore and Amazon could undercut me every day, and get a book to someone the next morning, I I would feel very, very angry. So I knew I was going to upset a lot of the relationships that I'd spent years building. But then I also thought, I want the chance to write this book. Um, so I took the risk, and it came out, and it what one of the things they did for it, it was a Kindle first. So it came out with 400,000 people having read it before it was ever published. And um, and then um, it went straight to number one on Kindle, and I enjoyed being number one on Kindle for a few weeks, which was very heady. Um, <laughs> uh, and um, uh, and then you know, so and then another four hundred thousand people have read it. So eight hundred thousand people have read it in English, and it's published in all sorts of languages. So it's suddenly propelled me into a completely different universe. You know, yeah. where you're going to sell a million books, which is um, you know, which is very nice in many ways. And the, what I found delightful is that I can write what I want to. Obviously, if you're writing a series, 
if I'm with Molly Murphy in New York, there's lots of things she can never do. Mm -hmm. um, there's places she can never go. And these, they're all different. They're looking at different people and they're uh, going into very different, even though they're all world, many are World War II. You know, I've done the one set in Tuscany. I did the one set in Venice. Um, I did the, the most recent one called Where the Sky Begins is about a, a very humble London woman who is literally her house is bombed. She's buried in the rubble when her house is bombed. And then she has to really make a new life starting with nothing, literally with nothing, because mm -hmm. she has no clothes, she has nothing. Um, and how do you do that? How do you find the resiliency to make your new life for yourself when you, everything's been taken away from you? So I've approached the war from many different angles so far. And my lovely editor, I say to her, I'd really like to write a book that's about a woman who's bombed in London and has nothing. She goes, oh, wonderful. And I go, and after that, I'd really like to write a book about someone who lives in Paris and who's sent back to be a spy. And she goes, oh, wonderful. So, you know, it's like whatever I want to do, I can tackle. And um, so every time I get an, a, a new idea, I can I can go ahead and try that. Well, and I love, again, another thing for writers to hear is that, you know, your relationship with your agent, it's a business relationship and there are going to be times in your career where it doesn't work anymore. Um, and, and when you need to take a leap, you need somebody who's going to support you in that. Yeah, you've got to be totally on the same page. Your agent has got to be your biggest champion. That's um and so, you know, I've, I've, I've had people come to me for advice over the years and she said, my agent hasn't got back to me for three months. And you say, well, in that case, she's not really your agent. You yeah. know, she has to want for you what you want for yourself. She has to be your, your champion. She has to be in New York fighting for you saying, you have to read this book because it's really very good. Yeah. But she also has to be your mentor. She might have to say, this book is not going to do it. You know, we we and I can't represent you with this book because it's not it, it's not you, right? So you know, you have to trust your agent completely. And I'm really lucky. I have Meg Rooley at at Jane Rosen, and she. Uh, it's so funny because I don't know if you've met Meg. She's everybody adores her. You go into the cocktail room at the Edgars, and everybody goes. Meg's here. And she's everybody. <laughs> Hello, everybody. How are you? And, and everybody, what a delightful person. And um, uh, my, one of my um, publishers said to me once, you know, Meg is really tough. And um, she said, we were negotiating a new contract and, and, and they would give it to Meg and Meg would look at it and she'd go, those weren't exactly the numbers we were thinking about. And she'd shove it back across the table at them. <laughs> So you want someone like that on your side, too. She's brilliant. Yeah, she is. She has an amazing roster of writers and and, yeah, does, yeah. and also must be thrilled for you that, it, you know, at this point in your career, you're you're blossoming in new ways. I mean, that's exciting. Well, I think I'm a I think I'm so lucky because obviously it, it has worked. But I mean, as a writer, to be able to um, stretch yourself to say, well, The Tuscan Child was a big stretch because first time I was writing two parallel stories in two different time periods, and I knew I'd enjoyed that with other writers, and, and I wanted to do it, but it wasn't something I knew I could do well. Mm -hmm. And it was funny because I wrote one, I wrote Hugo's story completely, and then I wrote Joanna's story, and then I thought, well, how do I put them together? <laughs> so I literally 
my house in California has a very long hallway, and I had all the chapters of Hugo going along the hall. And then I stood there with the Joanna chapters going, oh, we need to know this right here. So literally, <laughs> I put them physically along that hallway. Um, and thank God nobody opened a door and there wasn't a great <laughs> there would have been a disaster. But, you know, so you, you, know, you learn as you go along. Um, and I found that was, that was a real stretch to do that. And uh, I, I like stretching myself. The, the book that's coming out in the, the standalone that's coming out in the summer called The Paris Assignment um, not sure I'm thrilled with that title, but everybody said Paris sells. We have to have Paris in the title. <laughs> um, part of it does take place in France, um, occupied France in the war, and um, some really harrowing things happen. And I'm not good at making my characters suffer tremendously, you know, and they had to in this book. There were some things that were really, really awful. And um, I kept thinking, oh, I don't want to get to that chapter tomorrow, but, um, uh, you know, so each time it's stretching myself to do something I, I wasn't sure I could do. When you already said that when you're working on a novel, you're feeling it and you're, you know, you're reacting. So writing those traumatic scenes, yeah. um, did you have to, to take extra care of yourself? Cause that, that's, you know, if you're already so emotionally invested in yeah. your novels and then you're putting your characters through terrible things, that does take its toll. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, I think it's been a hard time for me, a hard time for writers during the whole COVID isolation, because one thing that I need, I'm, I'm very much um, an extrovert, you know, and I need people around me. So not seeing people as much, not being, when, when I write, you know, I, I sit there and then I go out and in the summer I go and swim or else in the winter we go for walks and I look at nature and things. So, um, you know, I need to do those. I, uh, you say, take care of myself. I need to escape like that. Mm -hmm. I need to, normally we travel a lot and I love to travel too. Uh, during the COVID time, we were pretty much limited to our walks you know, our walks beside yeah. the bay in San Francisco or, you know, wherever. And um, yeah. I have to do that. I have to. Um, and I have to I have to I have to meet friends for lunch, too, you know, and just just talk about silly things. Yeah. You mentioned early on that you were, um, you know, very small child during World War Two, but World War Two affected Britain for a long time and, and yeah. continues, you know, to, to have its um, effects on folks. But you had that, that memory of a small child. And as you're writing these novels, you are exploring it as you would an adult. Um, and it's a really fraught period of time and, and an important period of time for people to talk about, you know, the thirties and Germany and everything else. Yeah. Um, how, how has that been for you exploring it? So having, knowing people who were, you know, really yeah. involved and then having some memories, um, how has that been in, in writing World War II or exploring World War II? Yeah. I, I mean, I don't really have real memories myself. I was too young when the war was over. There are things like if I hear um, a siren that used to be the same as an air raid siren, I immediately do that. Um, yeah. If I see searchlights in the sky, I do that. Those two things obviously have stuck with me from the very beginning. But apart from that, you know, I didn't know anything else. I just thought this was how life was, obviously. until I, I know that we had that we had to put down blackout curtains 
um, and everything had to be dark by the moment the moment the light was gone. And I can remember not ha- not having we'd lost electricity and we were cooking something over the coal fire. Um, so um, so I remember doing that too. Um, but I, I really don't remember thing, anything about the war. But I do the, those post-war years and when I was a child, and um, it was a time of austerity. And also, if you went to like if we went up to London, you would see bomb sites everywhere that hadn't been cleared. You would just see piles of rubble sitting on corners everywhere. Mm-hmm. So you know everything was rationed until 1953. We still we ate ate very simply, and um, you know you grew your own vegetables and things. And I think one of the one of the driving forces behind my wanting to write about World War Two is that I don't want people to forget um, the last people who were soldiers now died, um, or are, you know the last ones are a hundred and, and are just about to die. I want people to remember this is what it was like in a world war, and this I think it was the last time when we had a clear vision of good versus evil mm-hmm. and. Everybody felt that they had to do their part, or evil was evil would swallow the world. Mm-hmm. So um, that that's one of the motivations behind writing these books. Also, if you're writing, there's so many stories to be told, and I felt very much that after World War II, all the books that came out were about the bravery of men. Um, Aren't we, you know, I was on this PT boat while well, I was in this squadron, while well, I got out of Colditz Castle, and nobody mentioned the quiet bravery of women. And that could range from just being a mother protecting your children during the bombs to someone like my heroine in this upcoming book who is dropped behind enemy lines in France and knows that every day may be her last, and yet she still does it. You know, when I was researching this, the survival rate for these young women who were sent into France was 25%. So they knew that their chances of coming out alive were very, very small. Mm. So um, there are so many stories of women to be told. You know, it could go on forever. The ones who, the ones who were in the armed forces, the ones who flew those giant planes, and um, because they weren't officially members of the Air Force, if they crashed those planes, no one was even going to pay for their burial. I mean, there are all these things that you want people to know. This is how it was. People people did extraordinary things, and they didn't complain. They just got on and did them. So yeah. I just want to keep on writing these stories. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we all want you to keep writing these <laughs> stories. And I marvel at two and a half books a year. Um, And I thank you for this wonderful conversation. Uh, You know, one final thing, you talked about community and how important it is for you to see people and everything else. You've been a member of Sisters in Crime for a long time. Um, What has that organization or any writing organization um, meant to you as you're, you're also one of the Jungle Red um, writers, uh, which is a terrific blog. you know, what is what do those communities mean to your writing? Well, as I said before, writing is such a solitary thing. And uh, you don't get any feedback at all until you've written the book. Um, and so there you are in your own little world just writing. Um, the first When my first book was coming out, um, I learned, I don't know how I learned about Sisters in Crime. It must have been through somebody that I knew or perhaps my 
perhaps my editor at that time said, you, you probably need to join Mystery Writers and Sisters in Crime. And I went to my first meeting and I thought that people would go, oh, you know, she's, she's a new writer. You know, that can't bother with her. And everybody was going, oh, so when's your book coming out? Well, when it comes out, there's a bookstore near me and you must come over and I'll come over and be at it and be with. And I thought, and I got one of the first um, uh, fan letters I got was from Margaret Maron. Oh. She wrote and said, I've just read Evans Above and I have to tell you I love it. And if you come to this part of the world, let me tell you which bookshops you have to go to. And I thought, it's Margaret Maron. She wrote to me. <laughs> Um, and but I found that from the very beginning that there was this great feeling of um, uh, support and camarade, like we're all in this together. Um, and really, it was only I think when my second book came out, I went on a I went on a little tour with Janet Dawson and Penny Warner, and I went through Southern California in Penny Warner's motorhome, and we we had an absolute blast. We had such fun and. Um, uh, and then I did quite a few book tours with other writers after that. Um, you know, these days, unfortunately, my publisher sends me on a tour all by myself. So I sit there in my lonely hotel room. But it was <laughs> such fun doing it with the other writers. And I think the generosity has always struck me. Mm-hmm. And I'm very mindful, you know, when I get books, they, people send me books to blurb. I almost, I always try and fit them in because people did that for me. And... Um, you know, I, I always, if people ask me for advice, I always give it because people have done that for me. And I think the other thing with Sisters in Crime and Mystery Writers is we have a very active chapter in Northern California and we have speakers all the time and just learning things like someone coming and handing you a handgun and you're thinking, my God, this is really heavy. How do you walk around with this on your side all the time? If you're a female cop, this is heavy. You know, you, that's that's how you learn things. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it's, there's, there's a lot of benefits to that. Um, and, and supporting each other is definitely, but the, the practicality of learning how things work. Um, yeah. I still want to take a lock picking class, but, but perhaps that will <laughs> happen somewhere. We don't have hairpins anymore. That's the problem. I know. I know. <laughs> um, thank you so much for a wonderful conversation, Reese. Oh, well, thank you, Julie. I'll see you at the next convention. Absolutely. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international, inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.